don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, where we talk about all the things we don't talk about enough, starting with death, but not ending there. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with Dr. Sunita Puri. She is a director of palliative medicine at Keck Hospital and the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center. She lives in Los Angeles. She's an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Southern California. And she is also on the show because she is an author and an amazing writer. She's written essays for the New York Times and a number of other top-rated uh, publications. And she has a new book out called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, which I highly recommend you go by because she, she tells a story. She's an amazing thinker, and I had to have her on the show. So here she is, Dr. Sunita Puri. Dr. Sunita Puri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I read your book, That Good Night, and I've got so many questions I'm excited to ask you for. But before we get there, I know that uh, you only just arrived back home from the hospital today. And I was wondering if you had any observations or messages for listeners about what people need to know now at this time of uh, the pandemic? Certainly. So, you know, in my capacity as a palliative care doctor, I am seeing really, really high levels of distress and anxiety about illness and suffering and death. And it's, it's kind of more magnified than it's been in the past because people cannot see their families while they're sick, because with COVID, how someone is going to do can sometimes be really, really uncertain. And because physicians, like we are still learning how this virus acts and who it most affects. So there's a lot of uncertainty that everybody is navigating. And part of what we do in palliative care is we are specialists in navigating uncertainty. But there's been a greater need for us because both on the part of physicians and other hospital workers, as well as patients and their families, the amount of anxiety and uncertainty everybody is facing is really very profound. Yeah, wow. So first of all, thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for being there on the, the front lines. And uh, I know that one thing that's been written about a lot is... Um, Patients dying alone in this time and yes. the fear people have around that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on that? On you know um, how to are are people able are nurses and doctors able to ease some of their pain? What what's what's the real story behind um, that thing that brings up so much fear? Certainly. So you know because COVID is so contagious. We've had to limit visitors coming into the hospital. So most of the time, patients are not physically connected with the people they love the most. Sometimes they're not even physically connected with their doctors because they try to limit the number of doctors that go in the rooms of patients with COVID. And so that has really, really impacted everyone's ability to connect with and support patients and families. For instance, I often have goals of care discussions with families over Zoom, which is a very difficult way to connect with them and support them through all of the added stress, not only of a loved one being sick, but a loved one being sick at this time. 
And unfortunately, because things can change in a second with someone's health in the hospital, we do have people who have died alone. And when we see that coming, we really do everything we can to make sure that they're not truly alone. So it's not uncommon for their nurses or one of their physicians to go into the room to be with them. Sometimes we can play music that we know they like. And very often when we know somebody is going to die fairly soon, or if we're moving towards taking them off life support and allowing them to be comfortable, we will make every effort to get the family in. Because at our hospital at USC, we do allow family in when somebody is actively dying. So we really try to prevent the circumstance of them dying alone. But when it happens, we kind of step forward as a community within the hospital to try to prevent them taking their last breaths truly alone. Well, thank you. That's really beautiful. And I, I actually really love the idea of music, uh, like personal favorite songs, things like that, because, um, you know, only someone who loved them could tell tell you what song to play. You know? Exactly. Um, so you can feel held even when holding becomes um, unsafe. Absolutely. And I've heard so many different songs in the years I've been doing this work. I've heard I've had people want their loved ones to hear Brick House. I've heard people playing <laughs> um, Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears. I've heard Sinatra, I've heard Guns N' Roses, I've heard Tupac. I mean, it's really interesting. You learn so much about who this person is based on what their families say they would like to hear. Sometimes it's hymns, you know, sometimes it's hip hop. It's ever I've heard everything. And I imagine there could be whole stories and like private jokes behind some of the choices, like Britney Spears and yeah. <laughs> you know, ways that someone can feel like their loved ones are nearby and, um, you know, helping uh, make them feel seen. Yep, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, care has to evolve to meet new circumstances um, all the time um, and that people find a way. Yes, I think that's one thing I've seen about the human spirit is that it is very resourceful and resilient. And we can bear more than we think we can. We can work with change more than we think we can because we've had to throughout our existence. And so this virus, this pandemic, is, and our response to it is part of a longer narrative in human history about how we've dealt with uncertainty dealt with disaster and risen to the occasion to kind of push back. Yeah. Um, you know, your book actually starts with some discussions about early conversations with your parents talking to you about death and uncertainty. And it's almost felt like a more like older perspective around these perspectives that your parents inherited and also gave to you that maybe uh, it's a little bit rarer, at least in America these days. Do you want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about that and how they saw death and what they told you? Yes. So my parents are both scientists and they're also very deeply spiritual, very religious. And they come from the Hindu and the Sikh traditions, 
but mostly what I was exposed to was Hindu and even Buddhist beliefs. And the core belief system or the what kind of is at the center of Hinduism and I think Buddhism is this idea that life is impermanent and that all things change. And if we can't accept things as they are, we will inflict on ourselves a tremendous amount of suffering. And there's also very much this idea that the best way to prepare for a good death is to remember God at all times. And so at a very young age, my father started telling me about the importance of this perspective. You know, he would point to a plant in our living room and say, just like that plant will one day wither and die, each of us is going to go through that as well. And the earlier you understand and accept that, the less suffering you might see in your life because you won't be fighting back against that which is. And when I was five years old, I, I really did could not grasp this. But as life went on, even from minor things like the changes in my friendships in intermediate school, where let's all face it, girls can be really mean and you can lose a lot of friends fast, that my dad would even say, look, this is evidence of everything I've told you, that everything changes. Not, it's not just life and death. It's the nature of who we are. Our bodies change. Our relationships with others change. And if you can't find a way to accept and go with that, you will be the one to suffer more for it. And so these teachings kind of opened me up to a lens on life that I don't think many of my medical school classmates had. And then I went into medicine and we were definitely not thinking about life being impermanent or suffering being something that can be needless at the end of life. We were thinking about how do we keep everyone alive as long as possible? And we equated survival with success. But I think what my parents taught me is that survival isn't everything. And that quality of life matters. And the more you fight back against the body's nature, and it is the nature of our bodies to die, the harder you push back against that, the more suffering you will inflict on the person and everyone around them. So it's a very useful foundation to have in life, but especially in medicine. Yeah. And you, you spoke in your book that you almost quit medical school because that survival at all costs mindset really felt like not the reason you got into medicine. And then, you know, a chance, a rotation uh, with palliative care kind of set you on a new course. Uh, what was it about that sort of mainstream survival all cost perspective that you th was really wrong for you? I think be because what I, what I witnessed in my training was very much let's do this to this person because we can, but it wasn't necessarily the thing we should do. So as an example, I remember very vividly as a medical student, there was a woman who had AIDS and who had come in with a really, really bad pneumonia. And we as a team never once sat back and explored the bigger picture with her, meaning what she wanted for herself in the context of a life-threatening pneumonia, but that in the background of a disease that had been slowly taking her life for a while. Instead, we sent her to the ICU, we put her on a breathing machine, 
her kidneys started to fail. We put her on dialysis. Her blood pressure started to drop. We put her on blood pressure support. And all the while, I felt like what we were doing was just prolonging the inevitable. And yet no one voiced it. And I was a measly medical student. I didn't feel empowered in the least to say anything to any of my superiors. But I was the one rounding on her every day. And it went from me being able to talk to her to me not being able to reach her at all because she was in the chemical twilight we put people in in the ICU. And I remember very clearly wondering, why did I sign up to do this? I feel like all we're doing is monitoring physiology and the person and what they might want for themselves was just completely left out of the picture. And so I got to the point where I really wondered if the sort of medicine I envisioned myself practicing was even going to be possible. And I knew that in order to maybe make any dream a reality, I would still need to slog through many, many more years. And so I had this crisis of conscience where I was like, should I keep going or should I bail now and just become a writer? And instead, I ended up signing up for a bunch of electives, just looking for some sort of inspiration. And when I did my palliative care elective, we saw people just like my patient who had a set of chronic diseases that would ultimately take their life. And they were in the hospital because they'd suffered a new blow to their health. But we were able to talk about what they wanted for themselves, not just in the context of that new problem, but in the context of how that new problem sat with the rest of their problems. And we were able to get into the sort of quality of life they really valued for themselves, the sort of person they are and what made their life meaningful, and what they wanted for themselves as the end approached. And I really felt like that was the way I wanted to doctor. I wanted to use my tools in medicine, but I also really wanted to use my language to get at what mattered to people and to get at who this per the people before me are, and also to use my tricks and my technology when appropriate, but also to remind people, just because we have this tricks, these tricks and technology, if they're not right for you and what you want for your life, that is okay. And we will continue to care for you in ways that ease your suffering and pain, but may not involve using tricks and technology. And seeing that modeled was profound. And that's really what made me continue on to my residency. Yeah, you tell this story of a dying patient with terrible insomnia and this sort of moment where, you know, the sleeping pills weren't working and yes. someone suggested legacy work, which didn't even sound like medicine to me. It sounded like something else. And yet, as a doctor, you were doing it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that story? Sure. Yes. This was a patient who had really advanced breast cancer. And I was seeing her every day on the palliative care service when I was a med student. And a lot of what she would talk to me about was the fact that she couldn't sleep. And that she was so anxious and grieving over the fact that she'd have to leave her family. And so, and a lot of what we do in palliative care is actually managing symptoms, ranging from cancer pain to shortness of breath and heart failure to constipation and anxiety and depression too. And so I was trying all of the tricks with the medicines I knew for helping her to sleep 
And when we talked about it on rounds, the chaplain on our team suggested that maybe the sleeping pills weren't going to work because the reason she couldn't sleep had nothing to do, like, like the sleeping pill wouldn't address that. So she and I went into this patient's room and we kind of talked to her about the roots of her anxiety, about who she was nervous to leave behind and what she might want to say to them. So we recorded her voice in a tape that was given to one of her children and we wrote a letter on her behalf. She dictated and we wrote it out to her daughter. And legacy work is really powerful because it gives patients a tool or tools to really communicate what they want to the people they love. And that might take the form of, hey, you know, I wrote you this letter. I want you to open it on your graduation day or on your wedding day. And it gives people the sense that they have some control in remaining in their loved one's life, even after they physically die. So it's a very, very powerful adjunct to using our medications and using the conversations we have about what matters most to people. This actually is a tool to help them give voice to who matters to them and why. You know, um, I think for most of my life, I thought of legacies as something rich people bequeath with their names onto buildings or something, but that just (laughs) sounds so beautiful. And it makes so much sense because you know, I know from reading all this death material now that one of the top deathbed regrets is around things left unsaid in relationships. Yes, definitely. Is that, is that, do you find, I mean, you have been at more deathbeds than me. Is that a common feeling at the end of life, these sort of like needing to finish uh, some business and tell people things that are important? It certainly is in some instances when the person is still lucid and mentally aware, but it's hard to tell in other instances when people are so sick that they need to be on a ventilator. But many of the folks I've seen, particularly if they've had palliative care involvement throughout their illness, they will have thought through who means what to them and how they should outreach to people, which is a big reason why talking about death early on in a serious illness gives people the chance to really reflect on who they want to say goodbye to or who they want to make amends with. In general medicine, we do not do a good job in addressing that. And so when you work with a palliative care team, one of the things that we do so well is to make sure we explore how a patient the rest of their life is affected by this illness. And I've seen really beautiful moments where a brother comes back into a sister's life who he hasn't talked to for decades and comes to see her on hospice for the first time in decades, and they make their peace. I've also seen people who are estranged from parents, and they may not want to see their parent, but they'll write a letter to say what they need to say. But when we get involved late, Patients miss those opportunities for connection. And that always makes me really sad because I have been at the bedside of patients who are going to take off life support because they're dying. And their loved ones will say, you know, she never really got to say goodbye to the son that she hasn't seen in a year. And it's the sort of thing where if we had talked about that 
the year before, or even a few months ago, she might have been well enough to do what felt right to her. So the earlier we have these discussions and acknowledge that illness has a ripple effect on the rest of our lives, the more empowered we can actually be to forge meaningful connections, either for the first time or to connect again with people we love that we, for one reason or another, may have had complex relationships with. How does that happen? How do, how do people find palliative care, get into these sort of bigger questions earlier? So a lot of the professional guidelines, especially in, with patients with cancer and heart failure, are that the early, at the earliest time possible, when someone's diagnosed with a serious illness, no matter what it is, palliative care should be involved. And palliative care, just to distinguish it from hospice, because a lot of people confuse the two, but palliative care is, we're a team that can work alongside a patient even when they're getting chemotherapy or meds for their heart failure or more advanced interventions for their liver failure. And our goal is to work with the other doctors to keep people's quality of life the best it can be, even when they're trying to live with and get treatment for a really serious illness. And so if somebody is suffering from bad symptoms or wants to have these sorts of discussions, you are always, it is always okay for you as the patient or a family member to bring up to your doctor, hey, we were thinking about getting a palliative care consult because we're struggling as a family to make sense of everything that's happening to dad. Sadly, Despite those professional guidelines, a lot of doctors don't refer to palliative care when they should. And I think that comes from this idea that many people have that palliative care means giving up. And it absolutely does not. But people have that perception, especially my colleagues. And so that can be the barrier to patients getting what they need. So I encourage families and patients to ask their doctors for a palliative care consult. And if they seem resistant, I would just be prepared to say why you think this is going to help the patient. And ultimately, all doctors want to help their patients. And if there's a need that they're not meeting for that patient, most of us are really open to sending a referral to someone who can fill that need with more expertise. You know, one thing that was really um, two things that really came through in your book was one, just how much I guess all doctors sacrifice to become doctors. You, you speak eloquently about, you know, turning 30 and, you know, your personal life being a mess and working 12 hours a day and no weekend getaways like your friends and um, uh, getting really tired from it. Um, and at the same time in the book, there is this, you know, critique that um, we need to do better, um, maybe even more for people because we're not serving the whole person in this way. And I guess, how do you reconcile those two things of like, how can you possibly act or ask doctors to do more mm -hmm. um, and um, needing to change? And how do you wrestle with those things, with needing to ask your, your fellow medical professionals to make changes? with how hard it is to be a doctor today? That's a great question. And I think what it comes down to is education from the earliest point of our training. 
I really do feel like if we as a profession were required to become good in asking our patients basic discussion, basic questions about what's important to them in their life, what sort of a quality of life they would not want to sacrifice for the sake of treating an illness. If we were all more comfortable and well-versed in those sorts of discussions earlier on, I really think it would actually make many of our lives easier. Because what ends up happening is without that training, the amount of moral distress that my colleagues and myself experience at not being able to tell a patient the truth or not being able to get them comfortable when they're they're screaming due to cancer pain, the lack of education makes everything worse. Just like we're educated to know how to treat problems with the heart or how to test for diabetes. If we have the skill set around communication, I actually think a lot of oncologists, cardiologists, primary care doctors would be less distressed about caring for their patients. So it's not really asking them to do one more thing. I think the answer is integrating that thing into our education from the very beginning. And to have medical centers really support that And one of the ways they can do it is by having a good palliative care team. So the the primary care doc might take a first pass at this with good education. But as those conversations become difficult, knowing that you have a palliative care team there to help you, I think is really key as well. Um, So that's kind of how I would address that. I think there are tremendous demands made on doctors and we're always being critiqued and asked to do more. But this particular skill set, I actually think will help us to do more better and more efficiently. And I can't say enough about the need also for support, real support for physician well-being, because I didn't write about a lot of this in in my book, but the experience of residency was extremely traumatic and you carry that trauma forth with you. And at least for me, a lot of the trauma came from doing things to people that I knew I shouldn't be doing but I didn't know how to talk about it. And I didn't know whether I'd get in trouble for doing so. So I just went along doing what was expected of me. And that's where I think moral distress and burnout come from, is feeling like you need to do things that you're not equipped to say, we really shouldn't do this. So the earlier we're educated that our role is not just to keep people alive forever, but that success as a doctor actually means giving people the treatment that aligns with their goals, I think that would make for a much easier practice of medicine in this country. So that term moral distress almost sounds like a diagnosis or jargon from like outside of hospital wings, is it? Or is that something that doctors talk about and deal with? So we definitely talk more about moral distress than we used to. Some of the studies around it really come from studying nurses. But this is an issue with people who are training as doctors and doctors themselves. I think as a community, as a culture of medical professionals, we are not good at acknowledging when we're not doing well. We're not good at expressing what it was like to take care of someone you cared for a lot who died. We don't talk about the trauma of admitting a patient overnight in the middle of the night who has end-stage cancer, and either you need to send them to the ICU to keep them alive, or you need to say, we're not going to do that because it will only cause suffering. 
And those situations happen a lot. But just to give you an example, you know, many hospitals, including ours, have hotlines for physicians to be able to call to talk about their distress. And very few people actually call and make use of that resource. So it's a big, I think part of what makes moral distress more impactful is that we're not used as a community to sharing our feelings with others. I'll tell you in residency, that was taken as a sign of weakness. So I just learned to keep it to myself and soldier through. And that makes for a very lonely experience in medicine. People call it uh, stoic these days, even though uh, the ancient stoics were the most social people (laughs) you could possibly imagine. That's a great point. Um, It was all based on stoic friendships and, you know, constantly working with other people to make almost every life decision upon more logical, like better terms and being unafraid of death. Um, uh, So it's, it's interesting. And, you know, one thing I like about your book is kind of tell the story of becoming a palliative care doctor, starting with some of your failures, including the first time really trying to have that hard conversation with a family of a man you thought was dying with months to live. And the family, uh, through a translator, ends up saying, like, please, let's never talk about this again. Yep. And I imagine if that had happened to me, if I were in that those shoes, I would be mortified and never want to talk about death again with any patient or their family ever. Um, Can you just talk about that experience and maybe why it's so hard to have these conversations? So I I remember that patient vividly. And I think what's difficult is that we know we have to do it and we don't know how to do it. So our intentions don't match up with the outcome of those discussions. And we're all given these like, training guides to how to have a discussion. And as I talked about in that anecdote, going by the step-by-step process, like for example, start by asking a patient what they know about their disease before you launch into giving them information they may not know. So you know to ask and you know to do the next step, which is to share, you know, to correct any misinformation they would have. But what you don't know how to do is to deal with what comes after you do that. So if you have to say to someone, I hear that you, your oncologist led you to believe this cancer is curable, but I want to share with you that it's not. We, can, we might be able to say that, but what comes after that, the questions, the reckoning, the emotional outbursts that happen, the questioning of your expertise, That's the stuff we don't know how to do. And so I did that first meeting very much not knowing how to answer the questions that were coming my way, like asking me, how long do I have left to live? Or, you know, that that in particular was one that I was not at all prepared to answer. And when I did, I turned out to be wrong which, you know, is still something that delights me to this day because this patient was so amazing and I'm forever grateful that I had the time with him that I did to be close to him and his family. But at the time, I felt like I was making everything worse by even trying to have this conversation. And so it's really difficult. Those guides and the PowerPoints around doing this this work are not sufficient. It's very different from watching a PowerPoint about how to perform CPR. And even then, 
I would say, unless you start doing it, you're not going to know how hard it is and how many other resources you might need. So it's not straightforward at all. And the fact that a lot of doctors do believe, well, you know, talking to a family is just simple communication. It's really not. And because we think we know how to do it, we get ourselves into a lot more trouble because we don't know what we don't know. So what are your tips either for doctors or anyone to have a hard conversation about life and death? So I think in order for our society to really advance to the point where we're minimizing needless or gratuitous suffering, I think there needs to be change both within medicine, but also a kind of a groundswell of change in the general public. So things like the work you do on We Croak, I think we need like 10,000 of these things to help inspire the sorts of discussions about mortality in general before people get to the point where they're sick. Because the more you contend with it, the less scary it might be when you are faced with it yourself or for someone you love. And I, th I write a lot in the book about different ways to open discussions. And I write about how I opened a discussion with my own parents, which was really hard. But there is a way to do it that's coming from a place of love and concern. So to say something like, you know, mom, dad, grandma, whoever, I've been thinking a lot about how if you got sick, I realize I don't really know what you would want for yourself or not. And I know there's a lot of medical technology out there, but not everybody wants that if it won't give them a good quality of life. Could we talk about that? Because I really want to be sure that if I have to speak on your behalf, that I know what to say. And I also want to be sure that if you need to make these decisions, we've at least considered it before a crisis arises. And so if it comes from a place of love with a goal of minimizing suffering, I think it can actually be heard very well. I also think another tip for having discussions in your own families is to ask to bring up a death that's happened. So you remember when grandma died in the nursing home from dementia. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, and I don't really know why. But it makes me think about whether what I would want for myself if I started to develop advanced dementia, the sorts of things I would and wouldn't want. Have you given any thought to that based on our experience with grandma? So bringing up a very specific instance to talk about that can widen out into a discussion of what we want for ourselves. And I think for medical providers, really saying to a patient who might be scared and resistant to say, you know, part of me taking care of you fully as a human being means discussing with you how I can best care for you if you got really, really sick or when you get really, really sick from this heart failure or cancer or liver disease. And I think being honest in that way and opening up to a vulnerable discussion strengthens the bond between physician and patient. Whereas if you bring this up in the midst of a true crisis, you're not really doing justice to preparing everybody who's involved for that. And so I think it doesn't need to be scary or foreboding language. It can be conversational, just as we're conversational with loved ones about many different things. Yeah, that sounds so um, easy when you put it like that, which I love. 
what about what do you see out there that maybe you recommend avoiding? What what do you not do if you're going to try to bring up these topics? I think so that's a wonderful question. And I think trying to trying not to make it a dire discussion as much as you can make it conversational and even if you have to fake it, try to normalize why this discussion is necessary and to center yourself before you try to have the discussion. Because I think when, for example, when I was training, if a patient caught on to me being nervous, it would make them nervous because they would wonder why I'm so nervous. And so I think the more you can rein in your emotions and center yourself before you broach a topic with someone you love, I think that will get you a long way as opposed to not really knowing how to introduce the topic and getting really emotional. There's definitely a place for emotions, but you want to try to collect yourself and center yourself as much as possible before you open the discussion. And I think trying to make it as non-random as possible. So now we're in the mid of in the midst of COVID. This is an easy intro to why we should talk about what we want for ourselves. And to point to something like that to say, you know, so many people are getting sick and we don't often know how that's happening because everyone seems to be at equal risk. I really want to make sure I know what you want and how you've been thinking about this. Have you been at asking yourself, what would I want if I got really sick with COVID? So I think curiosity and compassion are important to ground that discussion and normalizing it as much as possible, whether you're drawing on COVID, other deaths in the family, or just being realistic and wanting to be a good advocate for your loved one, that will really help. If things come out of left field, that's when people may not be as willing to engage openly in a discussion because they might be quite scared. Yeah. So talking about the current moment, which is the one we're all in, you know, COVID-19 is really infectious. You know, I know one of us is on a ventilator. You know, we can't tell each other what (laughs) we would want. Exactly. So let's talk about it now, just in case. For sure. Because, uh, you know, we hope it won't happen, but it could. Certainly. It seems to be sparing nobody. The young and healthy, the old and infirm, everybody has been vulnerable to this. I think the other thing I would say is to encourage people to talk to their doctors. Because if we know you really well, then we may have some recommendations about whether or not being on a vent is even in your best interest. And I think a lot of the times in medicine, we put the onus of making big decisions on patients and families without remembering that we can guide people. So I recently had a clinic patient who has metastatic, meaning stage four pancreatic cancer, and has had multiple pneumonias in the past because her immune system is really weak. And she brought up COVID and I said, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up. Let's talk about what it would mean if you get COVID or if you get anything else that would land you in the hospital. And as we spoke and I asked about what she wanted for herself, what there was this beautiful moment where she asked me, you know, you know me really well. What do you think I should do? 
And had she not asked that, I would have probably offered what I would recommend anyway, because I do think that's a responsibility of physicians. And we shy away from it when we should most be stepping forward. So it's not uncommon for a physician to say, do you want us to do everything to keep you alive? And to put that without any context or any information about what that would look like and to ask someone to make that decision in the midst of an emergency is incredibly unfair. So when I talked to my patient, I said, here's what I have in mind. I think that if you get really sick, we should give you antibiotics. We should give you medicines to ease any shortness of breath or other symptoms you have. We should give you time with your family. But if you got to the point where your heart stopped and you died, I think we should allow for a natural death. Because if you came to that point, nothing we could do would reverse the process in place. And so I think it's far better for you to be comfortable at that point than for us to put you through brutal and ineffective CPR. And it was, it's something that I do a lot with my patients is to make that recommendation or draw boundaries because it's too much for someone to decide on their own. We make these decisions from a place of emotion a lot of the time. Families don't want to feel like they're giving up on their loved one. Their loved ones may have said, do anything and everything to keep me alive. But what that actually means is lost on a lot of patients and families. And that's where we need to step forward. It's almost kind of a moral responsibility to say, as a doctor who knows you very well, if this happened to you, we would not be helping you by doing more. Doing more would be doing harm. And most of the time, patients and families are very grateful for that direction because if they know you and trust you, you, they know this is coming from a place of care. Hello, everyone. We thought this would be a great time just to take a quick break. Uh, Hansa and I, we just wanted to thank you so much for listening to the We Croak podcast. And um, Hansa, you were telling me earlier that you had some updates on our um, our listeners. Yeah, we've been listened to for many, many thousands of hours now. The people are really tuning in, and it's amazing because this was originally a way to just you know have conversations with with the authors of the books we were reading. So, if you're listening to this podcast, first of all, thank you, and thank you for all the amazing reviews and for sharing it with your friends because uh, we. You know, the more we see that you are tuning in, the more we're going to find great guests for you and make time for these podcasts. We really appreciate everything that you do, especially the reviews. There was actually just a, a new five-star review just a few weeks ago. And um, they were talking about, Hansa, how you asked such good questions and the guests are really interesting. And that, um, and I quote, there are many podcasts about death and dying, but this one is worth trying. Highly are, recommended. Are there really many? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, actually, there are. There are. There's there's lots of books, lots of people doing this kind of stuff. But we really appreciate everyone who tunes in to, to ours. And yeah, so if we can do one thing this week, share a friend, write a review. Let's get this podcast out to more people. We really appreciate that. And thank you to Maurice Frank, who wrote that very kind five-star review. Hope you're listening and uh, and enjoying. And now, back to the episode at hand. What do you do with um, people who 
really don't want to let go of hope. You know, those kind yeah. of statements like, you know, God will protect me. I'm going to recover even when, you know, all the doctors agree this is, you know, fatal and soon. Um, yep. what, what do you do in those situations? Because it is a natural one you see a lot. Certainly. So those can be really tough situations depending on how adamant someone is about their belief in a miracle or their belief that God will change everything, or sometimes their belief that God invented these machines so we should continue to use them. And what I really like to do is slow the conversation down and really get into the meat of what someone's trying to say. So for example, if someone says a miracle is going to happen, I ask them to help me understand what that looks like to them. Is the miracle getting him off of a machine? Is the miracle us returning him whole to you? Is the miracle getting him home? Or could the miracle be giving him some dignity in the dying process if we can't fix the problem? So I really try to get into what they're envisioning. And I will always say it is never my intention to take hope away but it's to understand what you're hoping for and put it in the context of your loved one's medical condition. Because I think there's a difference between hope and false hope. And I don't want you to have false hope. I want you to have hope, but we really need to be clear about what's realistic to hope for and what may not be. Because chasing an unrealistic hope will inflict a lot of suffering on him and the rest of you. And so I'm pretty frank, and I try to do it in as few words as possible, in part because in my writing, I try to be really concise, because I don't think long meandering sentences necessarily get the, get you to the point. So that's kind of how I approach it. And I tell them, no matter what happens, I'm going to be with you, supporting you. But the hardest things I have to do sometimes are tell people what they don't want to hear. But if I didn't do it, I would absolutely be giving you false hope. Sometimes I even say, you know, the easiest thing for me to do would be to say, you want me to do everything? I'll do everything. The harder thing is to pause and ask, what does everything look like in the context of what we're already doing? And part of doing everything means having this conversation. And a lot of the times we're able to soften the really hard stance people take because we're asking them to explain aloud a vision they have in their head, which as they explain it, unfurls. That's really, really beautifully said. You know, when you talk like that, you don't sound like a regular doctor, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trained to like, you know, save your life. It's not what you expect to hear from. I mean, I've been yep. to enough doctor's offices that I can just say that you sound more like a spiritual teacher or like a constable sometimes <laughs> than, you know, a medical physician, which is what you yeah. are. And there's a big section in, in your book called The Unlearning. Yes. Um, which I guess is about, well, changing the way you look at how you use your words and how you think of goals when doing care. Can you just talk a little bit about what that, what that means to you, that word unlearning and how you're different afterward? So that, sec that chapter and that whole section was really about my time in fellowship. So after I'd finished residency, I pursued a specialty fellowship in palliative care and hospice. And what I realized 
early on in that fellowship was that to do this job well, I had to unlearn how I was taught to have discussions and how I was taught to think about mortality in residency. So that meant really watching how I explained things, watching whether I just went on and on and didn't allow the family or the patient to say anything, or doing the right thing, which was saying a little, letting the family say more, inquiring about things gently, and then allowing the family to weigh in. And I think you have to allow for a spaciousness in conversation that you really can't have or you aren't taught to have as a resident. So a lot of, on my path to being a palliative care doctor, I had to recognize and consciously unlearn some of my habits from residency, which were much more about giving people a bunch of updates, saying what I was gonna do next, and not really putting the significance of those updates in perspective. So, I might have seen somebody who was doing poorly in the ICU and now his kidneys are failing, we have to do dialysis. That's probably what I would tell the family. But I wouldn't take a step back and say, the fact that he needs dialysis makes me worried about X, Y, and Z. So it's moving from giving facts and information to putting those facts and information into context of how this person is doing overall. So that was a lot of what I had to learn. I had to learn to unpack words. So like we were talking about with miracle and hope and do everything and I'm a fighter, those words kind of, we all read from the same cultural script, but where did those concepts come from and what do they mean to each individual person in a specific circumstance? And so learning to be what I called in the book, an accidental linguist, where I was now in this position of really having to get granular with patients about what they meant when they used certain words. That was definitely not something I was ever exposed to or trained for in medical school or residency. And it's a habit I actually kind of developed myself. It wasn't necessarily that we were taught that. It was that I came to see that I couldn't engage with the harder conversations without really understanding where the conflict was. And that conflict, at least in my experience, almost always came down to the use of language. Is this something that's only for palliative care, hospice, or end-of-life discussions? Or do you believe all medicine needs to get into language a little bit more, get into these sorts of questions? I think all of medicine does. And I think the earlier we are trained to understand that we can't just throw around words that don't mean anything, that we actually have to talk to patients more meaningfully, that I think is going to mitigate a lot of suffering, a lot of negative perceptions of doctors and hospitals, and will ultimately let us be the best doctors we can be because we will really understand why people are saying what they do. So I think it's just as relevant for an OBGYN to be able to have sensitive discussions as it is for a palliative care doctor or an internal medicine doctor. Okay, so one of the things I've been thinking about lately is, you know, we have an opiate epidemic in America right now. Mm -hmm. And at least in the news, uh, it was caused in large part by, you know, doctors taking relatively healthy patients who just had a surgery and giving them really strong um, 
opiate pain medications uh, without really having the patients understand maybe the risks of what they were taking. Um, and I'm wondering if you were going to use words in that situation um, to help a real patient understand risks and benefits, how, like, how would you have that conversation when they're like, you know, they're, you're 30, you're not real, or, or 18, not really in a risk of dying, you might be in a lot of pain, um, you know, you have to think about whether to take these, these, uh, this medication or not. What, what advice could you give a doctor in that circumstance? So I think the first thing to know is that opiates are actually not appropriate for a lot of kinds of pain. So a man falls off a ladder at work, hurts his back. That's actually not someone who should be given opiates. And I think that's where this whole issue arose and went wrong because people wanted a quick fix. And a lot of doctors were eager to indulge that in part, because if you give a patient what they want, they won't bother you. I hate to say it, but it's, it's true. And I think where informed consent fell by the wayside is that doctors themselves, I don't know that they knew in the beginning what the sort of long-term consequences were of using these opiates. I think nowadays we're a lot more strict, obviously, on who gets opiates and who doesn't. In palliative care, for malignant pain or pain coming from cancer, especially if it's an incurable cancer, opiates are really kind of the backbone of making someone comfortable. But even then, there are roles for Tylenol, for Advil, for blocks that actually block the nerve, allowing people to experience pain. So the treatment of pain is varied and complex, and it's not just about opiates, really in any circumstance. So I think the first thing I would say to a doctor who might prescribe opiates to someone is, number one, think about whether this pain actually needs opiates or whether they need Tylenol, Advil, heat packs, and good physical therapy. But B, let's say it's somebody with a bad cancer and a, bad, a lot of cancer pain, I always take my patients through the risks and I help them to know what are the signs of you using this opiate for the wrong reasons. And a lot of it is because people want to use it because it makes them feel psychologically better or it gives them that experience of euphoria that they continue to look for. And I have to trust my patients to report if they are experiencing that. But I also tell them at the outset, I have them sign a pain contract. And that basically says in writing that these are the risks and benefits of opiates. And by getting opiates, I agree to the following, including no early refills, if I'm running out of the medicine, I have to give my doctor seven days notice. If the dose isn't working, I call my doctor instead of going up on the dose the way I want to, which has happened to me. So I'm really explicit about this. And we, I think part of informed consent is not only talking about the risk of addiction, but saying these are substances that are often misused. And in order to care for you and keep you safe, I will have to do random urine toxes to make sure that you're using the medicine and that you're not using it in conjunction with other things. Because that sadly has happened to me where someone's on opiates and I do a utox and there's no opiate in their system. And it is probably because they're being sold. So I am really clear and I encourage all doctors to be clear at the very beginning that we want to help you and minimize your suffering. If we're going to give you opiates, 
these are the terms of the agreement to keep you safe. And we really can't waver on that. Uh, it sounds like, yeah, these sorts of conversations are important all throughout care in so many different places. Definitely. You know, you mentioned very early in the book, I think all the way in the authors know that you have this mission to help people have these hard conversations about death and about, you know, the big things in life, what their goals are. And obviously you do that in your palliative care practice. And I was wondering if you had any final thoughts about um, how any listeners, even if they don't, um, aren't headed to the hospital anytime soon, can start thinking about these big questions. Like maybe, you know, they want to have the conversation, but they don't even know what they want yet. I think one of the things to kind of meditate on or find a way of contemplating is the fact of impermanence. Because I think the more we can come to terms with that and have more comfort with that, even apart from death and dying, it's knowing that everything is going to change and it's not always in our control. So how do we make peace with that and then approach the fact of mortality? Because I think thinking about death alone might be really scary. So how do we prepare ourselves for death by really immersing ourselves in trying to come to terms with and understand that everything is going to change, including our health, our relationships, our bodies, the seasons, everything. And I think there's something about having a contemplative practice that can make us more prepared for anything that comes our way. There's a meditation in Buddhism which is based on the sentence, I am of the nature to die. And I think that so for some that might sound more morbid and overwhelming, but it's almost like looking at a fear really, really closely. And it's not the fear itself, but it's the anxiety that we've yoked to the fear that makes us kind of unfurl. So just like it may not be death, but it may be the anxiety and the fear and everything we put on that, that prevents us from having these discussions and thinking about what we would want for ourselves. So I really, really believe that in order to have an open acceptance of change with health and everything else, we really need to have some sort of contemplative practice. What are some contemplative practices you recommend? I really think meditation is huge and it doesn't have to be meditating for hours, a five minute meditation every day to think about, first of all, to quiet your mind, but also to kind of meditate on the fact of impermanence, to see pictures in your mind of the things that have changed in your life and how you have been resilient through them. I think having that practice is hugely important. Sometimes I will just do an open-eyed meditation looking at the tree outside my window and remember that that tree was bare just a few months ago. Before that, it had brown leaves. Now it has green leaves. And remembering that and looking at that grounds me physically in something that is representative of everything that we go through in life. Yeah, I will say that uh, this is a topic very near and dear to my heart. It was uh, some of these meditations that I started to try to do that inspired the We Croak app um, yes. and uh, changed my life uh, several times over just because things finally got clear. And 
um, you know, when you look back at the ancient texts, these death meditations, impermanence yep. meditations are everywhere. Um, and nobody was doing them, uh, at least no one that I knew in America. And uh, when I tried them, I found them really, uh, you know, a revolutionary practice, even as, um, you know, a man in my 30s with uh, in relatively good health. Yep. And in a way, it gives you more appreciation for what is right now, for the fact that you're healthy, for the fact that you're in your 30s. All of these are things that we don't often pause to really give thanks for. And I think when you meditate on the knowledge that everything is going to change one day, it gives you more gratitude for staying in the present moment. I've at least found that to be the case. It Definitely. And, um, you know, I find that so often we are stuck in these loops, like something's wrong at work or, you know, just some stupid thing. Um, like someone was mean to you on the, you know, um, a colleague or something like that, and it can ruin your whole day. And meanwhile, you know, you're doing things that, um, you know, are quite big blessings, like being able to walk down the street or... Um, eat your favorite foods or talk to the people that you love and that um, it's the nature of everyone that those things get limited severely given enough time. Yep. And And even um, in the next moment, I think having that embrace of change being life's constant really helps us really appreciate everything we have now, knowing that even tomorrow things will be different and we don't know how. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you meditate every day? Do you have a a practice? I try to meditate every day. And in the days where I don't kind of feel up to it because I'm exhausted, I'll do yoga. And that also really helps me to stay grounded, to remind myself to be in the present moment, because I think our minds are our worst enemy. And so the more we can distract the mind by staying present, I think that opens many of us to facing what's most difficult and to preparing for it. So I find yoga incredibly important in my in my life. Yeah, that sounds... Really great. So we've reached our hour. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I had? You know, nothing comes to mind because I think we talked about so many interesting and complex things. Um, I just, I'm very grateful that you had me on this podcast and I hope that what I've said will be of some help to people out there. I know it will be. And thank you. It's been an honor to have you on our show. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you again, Dr. Sunita Puri, for joining us for this episode. If you want to learn more, her latest book is That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. There is a link to that in the show notes. And to go back to something mentioned very early in this week's episode, if you were on your deathbed, Take a moment right now and think about what song you would want to play in that moment. And until then, we'll see you next time.